Good morning, Living Water. My name is Mike. I'm one of the staff members here at the church. I'm going to share the Word of God with you today. Welcome to everybody who's joining us at home via the internet. Let's dive right in. Romans chapter 14. We're picking up right where we left off last week. Uh, if you would uh, turn there, and when you're there, if you'd stand in honor of the Lord. Yeah, Pastor Paul, if you could do a little something with me. I'm hearing something, please. Thank you. Romans 14, we're covering this, basically the second half of uh, the chapter, picking up right where we left off in uh, verse 13 there. And as a custom, we read from the English Standard Version here. Word of God says the following. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding." Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray. Lord God, this is your word. It is a thing to be treasured. It is a, a serious matter, because we are hearing from the God of the universe. And so I pray that you'll be in our midst here today, that you have blessed the preaching of your word. Help me to articulate it well, faithfully, accurately, boldly, yet humbly. And give us all ears to hear what you have for us. Open up our ears, our eyes, our minds, our heart, so that your seed would fall on good soil and yield a plentiful harvest. That is my prayer for us this morning, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I'd like to welcome any first-time guests that are joining us here today. I know we have at least one, and hopefully we made you feel welcome. You, you have uh, experienced hospitality in this place since it is your first time visiting. So whether you are a first-time guest or you've been coming here for 15, 20-plus years, we all come to this place with baggage. 
We bring baggage with us. And, and that term, when you hear it, it is often used in a negative sense. Like an employer will be looking to fill a, a position and there's a good candidate, meets all the criteria, uh, good characteristics, good skill set, etc. But they say, yeah, but they come with some baggage. And the baggage there is not positive. It is something negative. It is a pejorative term. But that's not how I want to use the term this morning. When I say we come into this place with baggage, I'm not necessarily saying anything bad or good. It's not anything positive or negative, right or wrong. It just is what it is. It's what we carry with us throughout our lives. It's like baggage you would take on a trip. It's not good or bad. It's just your stuff, right? And we all have stuff that we bring into this place. Things like our past life experiences, our childhood, our upbringing, uh, the, the, the past circumstances of our lives, the experiences that we've had that make us who we are today. We bring all of that into this place. And so let me give you an example, uh, pick out just two individuals and kind of compare and contrast the two. I thought I would use uh, the two that are tag-teaming Romans chapter 14. That would be Pastor Ben and myself. We come to this place with certain commonalities, to be sure, but there's a lot of differences between the two of us. I will cite some examples. Pastor Ben is a black man. I am white, obviously. <laughs> Pastor Ben was born and raised in Texas, which he's there now on vacation. Hope he's watching at home, uh, hopefully in some air conditioning. Last I saw, it was 105 in Houston, so I miss my brother already. He's only been gone a week. we got two more to go, so hello, Pastor Ben, if you're watching. He was born and raised in Texas. I was born and raised in New York. He has multiple siblings. I'm an only child. He grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a non-Christian home. His family's Protestant. Dad's a pastor. We were nominally Catholic at best. Family stayed intact. The Maxi family stayed intact. The Bongo family, it's a broken home. Pastor Ben comes from what I suspect to be a dry home. Conversely, I'm from a home where we had a bar downstairs and outside, two of them. Pastor Ben was saved earlier in life. I came to the Lord much later. He planned to be in ministry. I did not. He therefore went to seminary. I did not. All of these things are what I'm calling baggage. We just bring this in together as fellow staff members and fellow members of Living Water Community Church. And all of these will affect how he and I interact. Now we just take that and multiply it out over the hundreds and hundreds of people who call Living Water home and bring in all these other factors that I didn't even mention, and you can see how challenging it is to be a part of the family of God when we come from different directions with all these different past experiences in our lives. And can we all get along? And it's especially challenging here at Living Water because of our diversity. And this is Paul's concern in Romans 14, the church getting along. All of these people, the people of God in Rome, 
getting along when they have different backgrounds, different experiences, they grow at different rates, therefore are at different levels of maturity, and how should they all coexist and live in peace? That is definitely a concern in Romans 14, and that's the surface level. But I think if we, if we ask a, a question, we can dig a little deeper and peel the onion back a little bit and see there's more going on. If we ask the question, why? Well, why is it important that, that we get along? Well, I think the answer lies in the fact that God is at work. He's doing something in the church at Rome, and he's doing something here at Living Water. He's doing things on a personal level with each and every believer independently, just personally building us up, helping us hopefully grow more and more into looking like Jesus Christ. That's the personal level. But then he's building us up corporately as the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he's building it. And we're part of that here at Living Water. So if the master builder is at work, we ought not do anything that would get in the way of his craftsmanship. And that brings us to the first verse we're going to look at, verse 13. Romans chapter 14, verse 13. The text says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. The verse begins with the word, Therefore. I am contractually obligated as a preacher to say the following. Whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you have to ask the question, what is the therefore? You guys are good. They didn't get it last night. I had to give them a mulligan. We had to do it over again. You guys are on it, and it's early. Very good. What is the therefore, therefore? And Paul does this continually throughout Romans. That's why you were on it. We got to look back. What did he just say earlier in the chapter? And you could even go back a couple more chapters to chapter 12, basically. What's going on here is the Apostle Paul is addressing an issue in the church. There's a strain on the Roman believers, a tension that exists amongst them that threatens the unity of the church. You got these two groups. Paul identifies them as the weak and then by implication, the strong. He goes on to state that explicitly in chapter 15. But Paul here is basically dealing with the same issue for a chapter and a half. 30 verses, of which we're devoting three sermons to. So Pastor Ben started last week. This is the second installment. And basically, we're going to continue the thought going into next week, Lord willing. That's how important this issue is. So when we say strong and weak, what do we mean by that? Well, it's strong or weak in terms of their faith as it relates to their conscience. See, the stronger, they understand that they have certain liberties. They have certain freedom to behave in a certain way when it comes to certain areas. The weak don't have that understanding. They, just, they haven't matured to that level yet. Therefore, they abstain from certain lawful practices for the sake of their conscience. And this is causing a, a tension amongst them. And it's important to remember, this is an in-house debate. 
This is an intramural discussion. It's within the church. This is not believer and unbeliever. This is two believers, two groups of believers. In the first half of Romans 14, Paul instructs the strong believers, don't look down on your weaker brother or sister. And likewise, to the strong, he says, you ought not judge and condemn the freedom of the strong. They have liberty, to, and, they, and they're exercising that liberty. So now, the second half of Romans 14, where we are here today, he's mostly speaking to the strong camp. He says, don't flaunt your freedom in a way that's going to adversely affect your brother or sister in Christ. And it makes sense, too, that he would focus in on the strong, right? They're the strong. They're the more mature. They can handle it. And so he's going to come at them, and he's going to come pretty strong at the strong camp. But think about it, too. The strong camp, they're the only ones with a choice in these matters. They can either partake or they can abstain, right? The, the weak don't have that option. They can only abstain and refrain for conscience' sake. So he's directing his thoughts here to the strong. And what's at stake? Well, what's at stake is unity. I mentioned it, something that the Lord Jesus prayed for in the Gospels. And something that Paul mentions all throughout the epistles. So that's at stake, but that's not all. I like what, what author Andrew Nacelli says. He says, disunity isn't the only danger. Arrogance and overconfidence among the strong made them ripe for a kind of sin-all-you-want heresy called antinomianism. Don't let the word scare you. Anti-nomianism, anti-against namas, the law, literally meaning against the law. But I like the way he puts it. It's a sin all you want heresy. You just throw off the law. You just don't, you're not concerned with it all. All things are lawful. You can just do whatever you want, uh, a lawless lifestyle. He says the strong are susceptible to that in their arrogance and overconfidence. But let me continue the quote. He says, Meanwhile, the judgmentalism of the stricter believers tended to push them into legalistic heresy. Legalism, making laws where there are no laws. You're just adding to the word of God and, and, and imposing that upon yourself and then you know, binding others with that. Legalism. That's the danger here, and we're going we're gonna to develop that as we go. That will hopefully become clearer later. But the stakes are extremely high, and that's why Paul is dedicating so much ink to the issue. Let's go back to verse 13. He says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, a stumbling block or a hindrance is anything that would cause someone to sin. Anything. And we can sin on our own. I can do bad all by myself. I don't need any help. But it's especially grievous when a brother or sister carelessly leaves something out for me to stumble over, uh, spiritually speaking. That, that's kind of what's being conveyed here is that you're being careless. You're leaving something there where somebody's going to fall over it and fall into sin. It's a lack of care that is really a lack of love. And so Paul is about to go off on the strong believers. But before he does, he does something very interesting. 
he actually agrees with them in a certain respect. Verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. He's saying, Mr. or Mrs. Strong Believer, you're right. Theologically speaking, you can eat that. You can do that. You're right on this issue of food. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. And he's persuaded of that viewpoint by the Lord Jesus himself, who said in Mark chapter 7, he, that's Jesus, said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. What Paul is saying here is there's more going on here than being right. He's granting them, you're right, you got it, you have the right perspective, but that's not it. There's more to it. And I think this might have been hard to accept for the strong camp. And for those of us who come here today and think we're part of the strong camp, it's probably a hard pill to swallow. Why is that? Because Christians are truth people. We're all about the truth. We want to believe the truth, not lies. We want to have the truth and not be susceptible to error. And so we tend to think the truth is the end-all, be-all. As long as I'm right, I'm good. That's it. The end of discussion. Paul says, nah, uh there's more to the discussion. The truth is they were right theologically, but they're behaving in a wrong manner practically. And I think I would liken this to what happens sometimes in marriage. In marriage, real marriage, in the real world, people have real arguments. Husbands and wives will argue, have disagreement. Hopefully it's civil. You know, you're not throwing dishes in the kitchen, right? You're just, but you're disagreeing nonetheless. But in this beautiful union we call marriage, it's not all about being right. There's more to it. Love ought to be the highest priority. Husbands, have you ever had the rare time when you have an argument with your wife and you're actually right? (laughs) I know, it's hard to fathom. It does happen, though. It does, very rare in in my situation, right? You, You got the right position. You got the W, okay? But you end up losing because of your behavior. Why? The way you're making your point is unloving. You overplay your hand. You're overbearing. You're pounding the table, insisting, I'm right on this. You raise your voice. You say words you shouldn't say. You had the win. You had it. Just take a knee, run out the clock, right? (laughs) You got it. But you end up taking the L. Why? Lack of love. Because your wife, through tears, is like, You're right, but you didn't have to be so mean about it. And you lost. And that's what Paul is saying here. You're right, you have the right to eat, but your lack of love for your brother as you exercise your right is wrong. That's what he's saying in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking 
and love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So what's, what's going on here? See, as the strong, and this issue of food, I mean, we're just centralizing here on the issue of food. As they would eat in a careless way, a reckless way, an unloving way, flaunting it in front of a weaker brother or sister, that may cause that weaker brother and sister to also partake of something that is okay. It's, it's clean, and it's completely right for them to do it, but they don't think it's right. And therefore, what they're doing is they are violating their conscience. They're not fully convinced in their mind. And you're causing them to stumble, which is a very dangerous thing when you sin against your conscience. Martin Luther said, it is, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And so we have to spend a few minutes talking about the conscience. Even though the word doesn't appear anywhere in Romans 14, it's all throughout it. It's just, it's the heart of this here. So what exactly is the conscience? I would say from, from popular culture, at least from when I was a kid, I always remember like the, the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other, right? The angel is uh, like the conscience and the demon represents temptation. And they're both trying to influence the individual. You know, the, the angel's saying, you know, this is the right thing to do do the right thing. And the demon's like, yeah, but it'll feel really good and you should go ahead and do it. You know you want it, right? Am I the only one that's experienced this, right? Not just Tom and Jerry. This is, they got it right. I mean, this, is, this is exists, man. This is real. They're both seeking to influence. And I don't think the conscience there is a, is a, a bad depiction because it's, it's this internal courtroom of the mind. Pastor Ben gave us a definition last week. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. And that you there is really important. See, he drew that, that definition from a book that, that we both discovered. I have it here. It's called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. Very, very short read. I read about half of it. It was, it was very helpful in, in preparing this sermon. I'm going to put it in the library when I'm done with it here today. But it's written by that, that guy I mentioned, Nacelli, Andrew Nacelli, and co-authored by J.D. Crowley. I would highly recommend it to you, uh, especially if you are struggling with how, how do I understand my conscience, how to, how, how to interact with my conscience, obey my conscience, which we'll get to in a second. So from the book, I, I glean certain things about our conscience. One is it's given to us by God. It's a good gift from God, a very helpful tool if it's used rightly. And it's a unique gift. That's, that's the you part. No two people have the same conscience. It is yours. And that's why the definition in the book is the conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Not your neighbor, not the person sitting next to you, not your parents, not your spouse. It's what you believe is right and wrong. And the conscience operates in the realm of black and white. It doesn't do grayscale. Right? It's, it's right, wrong, guilt, innocence. Paul says in Romans 2, it either accuses or excuses. 
it's, it's like a light switch, either on or off. It's very rare that your light switch gets caught in the middle. It does happen, but there's two positions, basically. And the conscience is like that. It's not a dimmer where there's gray area. It doesn't do nuance very well. So here's the tricky part about the conscience. Your conscience and my conscience isn't always going to line up with the Word of God. Not all the time. We're seeing it right here in Romans 14. I mean, I just got done talking about a group of people where their conscience didn't line up with the Word of God. They just weren't rightly informed on the matter of food. And so somebody might say, you'll hear people say this, or maybe you've said it. My conscience is clear. On this issue right here, my conscience is completely clear. That doesn't mean you're right, necessarily. You could be wrong. Because we can damage our conscience. You, you can desensitize your conscience. You can oversensitize. You can make it hypersensitive. And the Bible says you can sear your conscience as with a hot iron, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. But our conscience will change over time as we live and we grow and we learn more. We take in information. There were things in your past that you once thought were wrong, but now you believe are right and vice versa. So you can train your conscience. In fact, you must train it because the principle that we have to follow is always obey your conscience. And here's the tricky part even if it's wrong. That is very tricky. Always obey it, even if it's wrong. So what we need to do, we need to calibrate our conscience. The book spends an entire chapter on calibrating your conscience. What does calibrate mean? It means to adjust or align to a particular standard. You say, Mike, I I don't think I've ever calibrated anything in my entire life. I bet you have. I bet you have. You ever have one of those, um, like the, the old school bathroom scales? Not the digital kind, but, you know, the kind with the dial, and you step on, and it goes, woo, like this, and then back the other way, and, right? You're like, I don't think you needed that. You're like, Mike, we had it when you said it wasn't digital. Okay. So you come up to the scale, and you look down at the scale, and it's not centered at zero. It's like three pounds this way. You're like, oh, no, oh, we're not doing this. We're not playing. You're not adding three pounds before I even stand on the thing. You immediately pick it up and you turn the dial underneath to get it to line up with zero. Congratulations, you just calibrated something. Now, if you move it to negative five pounds to help make yourself feel better, that's bad calibration. (laughs) Don't do that. That's non-calibration needs to be recalibrated. So for bathroom scales, the standard is zero. For you and I, dear Christian, the standard is the Word of God. We must calibrate our conscience to the Word of God. We must be reading it. We must be studying it. We must be finding out what does it say so that we can train our conscience accordingly. And the thing to remember, though, is you're not always going to get it right. You're not. We're seeing it right here. The weaker brother doesn't believe it's lawful to eat meat. The conscience needs recalibration there. And so what we're dealing with in Romans 14 is these things called disputable matters. They're they're matters of indifference. 
If you like fancy theological terms, it's called adiaphora. If you ever hear adiaphora, that's what we're talking about. Issues of the conscience, gray areas. And there is seemingly an endless amount of these gray areas. I will give you a bunch right now. Take, for example, Bible translations. King James only, or can you use more modern translations like the NASB or the ESV? NIV, okay? NLT or message, what about them? Realm of politics, Republican, Democrat. Capitalism, socialism. What about single-issue voters? What's your stance on immigration? Gun control. What about global warming? How to treat the environment? Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, none of the above. Vaccines, no vaccines, only certain vaccines for certain people. Face masks, social justice, the race issue. What about our finances? Can a Christian go into debt, cash only, or can you use a credit card? Education for your children, homeschool, public school, private school. Disciplining your children, spanking, time out, count to three, count to five, count to ten, count to one. Some people hold the count to one. How about our speech? Can you say things like, oh my gosh? How about, oh my word? What about shoot or darn? What about freaking? What about friggin'? What about fudge and fiddlesticks? These get discussed. I'm not making this up. This is, this is true adiaphora right here. What about TV shows or movies? What should you watch? What about video games? What kind of music should a Christian listen to? Can you listen to secular music? Is rap okay? What about Christian hip-hop? How about drums during a worship service? I think you know where we stand on that particular issue. What forms of dancing are acceptable? How should we dress? What does modesty look like for the Christian? What should our attire be for Sunday morning church service? What about smoking, drinking, tattoos, body piercings, celebrating Easter, Halloween, or Christmas? And we could go all the way down to the color of the walls and the color of the chairs and the color of the carpet in the church. You can go as far with this as you want to. All disputable matters. Matters of conscience. Now, as I listed those, and that's not an exhaustive list, we could keep going all day with those, perhaps, perhaps some of you might have said to yourself, with regard to one or more of those, that's disputable? Oh, no, no, that, that one's clear-cut, no questions asked. I know the right position, and anyone who doesn't agree with me is an idiot. If that is your attitude, Romans 14 is for you. This is incredibly practical and incredibly relevant in the year 2022. Coming off a pandemic with all that we've had, have we not dealt with some gray areas? 
Where do you get your information? Who to trust? Who to believe? I'm swimming. I don't know anything anymore in the last couple of years. A lot of gray area by which we can apply Romans 14. It is as relevant today as it was some 2,000 years ago. I'll give you a a real-life example, one that I didn't even mention, and it's makeup. Makeup. Here's a a, a real-life example from Pastor Tim Keller. This was a true story, uh, what he said. He said he was growing up, and in his high school, there was a girl who was uh, from a very strict church-going family that believed it was sinful for her to wear makeup. So she didn't ever wear any makeup, but she would go to school and she would get peer pressured by other Christian girls who went to other churches that said it's okay to wear makeup. And they would maybe taunt her, make fun of her, or at least encourage her. No, you, you can do it. Question, are they right? I think they're right. I do. The Bible nowhere forbids makeup. But if she violates her conscience, which is what she did, she would leave the house with no makeup, put it on on the way to school, and then take it off before she walked through the door at the end of the day. What was she doing? She was violating her conscience because she wasn't convinced. She was choosing popularity with the girls at school over faithfulness to God and, his, and the God-given conscience that, that she had. And you know what happened to this girl, according to Tim Keller? She was much more open to clear portions of Scripture where it says, no, this is clearly a sin. And she fell into sexual immorality because she violated her conscience. She had stumbled because her Christian so-called friends had mocked her principles, misguided as they were. See, when you make that one compromise, it's so much easier to make the next and then the next. Next thing you know, you're you're wrapped tight in the cords of your sin. And it starts with a little compromise, but it was her friends who led her down that road, being careless and unloving. So how serious is this? When this happens, just how serious is it? Let me read through the rest of the passage, and I've taken the liberty to underline certain portions because I want to draw your attention to them. So let's read verses 15 through 23. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. If Jesus accepts both the strong and the weak, who are we to do otherwise? So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I think verses 17 through 19 are the classic, keep your eye on the ball. The important matters. It's not all about eating, drinking, and days. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. Paul's saying, don't strain out the gnats and swallow a camel. Verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. 
Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I think verse 21 is just so central. Are you going to love your brother or sister in Christ, or are you going to fight for your right to party, basically? Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Zip it. Zip it. Doesn't mean that we, we can't lovingly discuss and dialogue, but that's not what was going on in Rome back then. There was quarreling and fighting. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Did you notice the commonality with what I underlined? Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Very strong language. And we have to ask the question, what does he mean by destroy? What does he mean by condemn? What kind of destruction? What sort of condemnation does he have in mind here? Well, as I studied the issue and went to some trustworthy commentators, some, they didn't even deal with it. They just, nothing to see here, <laughs> just kept going. I'm like, okay, all right. I, I think we ought to bring these up. I'm thinking you might be thinking that, so we need to talk about it as hard as it may be. So some don't deal with it. Some say this is eternal ruin. This is final destruction. In a word, hell. That's what some people will say is at stake here. And I'm not talking about wild wingnut people way off in some place. No, solid Bible scholars will say that. But then there's a camp that say, no, that, that's not it. These are serious. We're not trying to gut them of their strength or their power. But the ruin there is the ruin of the person's conscience. What's being destroyed is that person's level of obedience to God's command. So they would stop short of the destruction being final destruction and the condemnation being eternal condemnation. And this is where I land. I, I, I land here, uh, you know, it's, these, are, these are hard matters. It's biblical interpretation. It's not always easy. But that's kind of where I land. I'll give you my rationale. I drew a lot of it from John Stott. Uh, John Stott, very solid guy. By the end of his life, he became an annihilationist. Uh, full disclosure, uh, I don't share that perspective, but it doesn't mean I can't agree with him here in what he says. So let me paraphrase his arguments. He gives a couple of them here. He says, are we really to believe that a Christian acting against his own conscience, which happens through being misled by the strong, merits eternal condemnation? No, Stott says, hell is reserved only for the stubborn, the impenitent, those who willfully persist in wrongdoing. I tend to agree with him there. And he says, secondly, didn't Paul declare earlier in the book of Romans that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ? Then how does the callous disregard for a weak brother's religious scruples do that very thing? And then I thought about the, the words of Jesus. What did Jesus say on, on, on the matter of fearing people, fearing God? He says, do not fear man who can only kill the body and then do no more, 
I'll tell you who you should fear. Fear God who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. Fear him. I, I don't think we have that power. And, and people would make the argument that it's kind of a domino effect. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation. They say this is, you're, you're pushing people in a direction that ultimately would lead to final destruction. I, I don't know. Lastly, I'll give this reason. I, I think this is very compelling. It's from the context itself. Look at verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He's contrasting here tearing down with upbuilding, destroying and building up. The term destruction is in contrast to the concept of building up, which does not refer to eternal salvation. Therefore, the weak person who is being, quote, destroyed is being torn down rather than built up in terms of their sanctifying progress. It's like you've destroyed, you, you destroyed them. You set them back like 10 spaces, you know. They're, they're advancing towards maturity in Christ, and you knock them way back. I think that's what's in view here with destroyed. And then I thought about it last night. We see this in sports. You know, Penn State goes to Michigan, plays them in football, and they destroyed them. Well, does that mean that the football players are destroyed? They don't play football anymore? They're knocked from existence? I, what does that mean? Or they annihilated them? Like, Michigan no longer has a football program? I mean, is Ann Arbor like Sodom and Gomorrah just smoking? From, no, just beat them really bad in the football game. It's kind of a way of speaking. It's a, it's a literary device. That's where I land I, again, I don't want to be dogmatic on this because I'd be open for discussion. I think that's the spirit in which Romans 14 is written. But it's good, to, it's good to kind of dive into these things. Either way, this is very, very serious. So, since the admonitions in Romans 14 are directed to the strong, how should the strong respond? How should they behave? And again, I would go back to the book on conscience. All right, they, they have in the, in the book a graph. And for me, the graph was worth the $11 I dropped on this book. It was well worth it. I think the graph, I'll walk you through it, will, will help you understand what's going on, but then more than that, will help us understand how now shall we live. And, and I got to apologize, because when I was creating this in front of my monitor, which was right here, it seemed big enough. Uh, but I was in the back, and we threw it up on the screen. I could not read it. So uh, if you email me, I can send you a copy. You can get it on the, the live stream uh, or buy the book. It's 11 bucks. I mean, you know, it's in the book. So we, we can get this to you, but I'm going to walk you through it in case you can't read it like me. So you have seven columns there, and we're going to work from the outside moving in. And you want to move towards the middle. The, the, the area, the three columns in the, in the middle there, that's like, call that the sweet spot. That's where we want to get to. So these outer columns, the periphery, not good. Let me walk you through it. So on the left side, you have the strong conscience. This is a strong conscience person, but carelessly they cross the line into lawlessness and immorality. They eat meat, and they say, I have freedom not only to eat meat, but to go to parties at idol temples. Uh-oh. This is heresy, and it distorts the gospel by lawless subtraction. What's going on here is that antinomianism. 
They think, I can do whatever I want. Just cast off the law, a lawless lifestyle. This is heresy. You don't want to be in this column. Nor do you want to be on the column on the right, which is the weak conscience. But crossing the line into legalism, legalism, making laws where there are no laws. They don't eat the meat and they say, you must follow the Old Testament, Old Testament dietary restrictions if you want to be a Christian. Oh, no. That, too, is heresy. That was the problem with the Judaizers, adding things to say, you, if you don't do this, you're not a Christian. That's heresy, and it distorts the gospel by legalistic addition. They're adding to it. Okay, so notice, both columns distort the gospel. Let's move in. We'll move into the next set of columns. The strong conscience, but they're looking, they have strong conscience, but they're looking down on those with a weaker conscience. This is what Romans 14 is dealing with. They eat the meat and they say, I have freedom to eat meat, and those who don't are being unreasonable and are in theological error. And they say that with a lot of smug and, and arrogance. And this diminishes the gospel. On the other side, the weak conscience person, they're judging those with a stronger conscience. They don't eat the meat, and they say it's sinful to eat meat, and Christians who do so are being unfaithful to God. What are they doing? They're judging them, being judgmental. And both of these columns diminish the gospel. Now, we'll move into the sweet spot. This is where we want to be. We want to be towards the middle. The strong conscience person here is fully persuaded Yet they're welcoming rather than looking down on those with a weaker conscience. They eat meat and they say, I have freedom to eat meat for the glory of God, but I still welcome Christians who disagree. This is a loving approach and it reveals the gospel. And on the weak side there, notice they are also fully persuaded and they are also welcoming rather than judging those with a stronger conscience. They don't eat the meat, and they say, I abstain from eating meat for the glory of God. The very same thing that the strong does, they eat the meat for the glory of God. The weak don't eat the meat, and they do it for the glory of God. But I still welcome Christians who disagree. Again, loving, revealing the gospel. But there's a center column, and this is the goal right here. Notice, it is a strong conscience. It's been trained. It's been calibrated to the word of God. And they are free to be flexible and go either way in these disputable matters that go far beyond eating meat. And why? They do it in order to edify fellow believers. That's the building up, not tearing down. And it's to advance the gospel. So do they eat the meat? Ah, whatever. You know, hot dog, no hot dog, steak, no steak, I don't, whatever, it's cool, I'll play it by ear, I'm flexible. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. The thing that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, and this should be the goal of every believer, to have this supremely loving attitude, and you know what it does? It magnifies the gospel. Now, if you look at these seven columns, the two on the outside, unloving. You don't want to be out there. You want to be in the middle, and that's what Paul is advocating for in Romans 14.
Those of you who are kind of visual learners, for those who can read it, hopefully that will be helpful to you. I found it to be very helpful. But guys, this is about magnifying the gospel. What did Jesus say? By this, this thing I'm about to tell you, all people will know that you are my disciples. What is it? If you have love for one another. What a testimony to a watching world. Instead of watching Christians bickering and fighting, oh, they're always arguing about something with all them denominations. No, we're unified and we love one another. That is, a, that is a wonderful testimony to this world. Let them have acrimony. Let us be unified. See, we live in a country where we celebrate independence. We just did it earlier this month. We celebrated on the 4th. And as important as independence is to our country, there's something that's equally important within the church. And it's not independence. It's interdependence. It's you and I need one another. I need you and you need me. We need each other. We ought not be cowboy Christians running roughshod over our weaker brother or sister, leading them into sin. So that they would stumble, having little or no regard for them whatsoever. Not very loving. For what? So that you can say, I got my rights. We love our rights in America. We do. I have every right, we say. Don't take my rights away from me. I have the right to do yada, yada, yada. Right? Paul says there's more to it than that. Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So in conclusion, what are we talking about here? I don't think I've used the word yet, but I need to. I think it's sacrifice. It's sacrifice. Are we willing to sacrifice? This is the gospel connection. It's the very thing that Jesus did for us to put us in this family. The only reason we're here to fight and bicker and quarrel is because Jesus sacrificed for us. We got a lot of nerve fighting, bickering, and quarreling. We ought to be sacrificial considering what Jesus has done for us. And he sacrificed a whole lot more than a plate of meat or a glass of wine. You, you can sacrifice a, a plate of some dead animal carcass for your brother or sister, can't you? Jesus did a whole lot more than that. He gave his flesh for us. You, you, you can deny yourself that glass of wine for your sister, can't you? Jesus did a whole lot more than that. He poured out his blood for us. Right? This, this is about sacrifice. One of the values we have at Living Water is number six out of seven. I have them memorized. It's important to know where your values are, and our value is we choose sacrifice. The pursue, I, I skipped over it, but that word pursue in there, you pursue these things. Pursuing means you're active. You, you, you don't sit back, kick your feet up, and this naturally happens. You must pursue it. The natural tendency is me, myself, I, my rights, I get to do what I want. Don't you dare infringe upon my rights. But let me end on a very positive note. I think we do this fairly well here at Living Water. I do. By God's grace, by God's grace, there are people from all walks of life. I just use Pastor Ben and I. There's all sorts of people with all sorts of different past experience, backgrounds, religious you know, upbringings, all that. And by God's grace, I think we make it work. I do. 
I do. We're not perfect. You know, we, we, it's, it has, you know, there's been times we let this get away from us. It's happened in the 20 plus years of living water. It's well documented. But overall, I think this is happening here. We ought to praise the Lord for that, okay? We choose sacrifice because that's what Jesus did for us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for that great sacrifice that even puts us in a right relationship with you, something we could never do on our own. We, we can't do enough good. We can't obey enough laws to, to make, you, uh, please, you know, make us pleasing in your sight, to be adopted into your family, to be called a child of God. That is by your grace, through faith, in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that great sacrifice you made on our behalf that puts us together as this family, your family. And we're like a lot of families where we don't always get along. We don't see eye to eye. But let love be the, the overarching theme amongst our interactions. Let us be guided by love and not insisting upon our own way. That's the very thing in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 13. It says love doesn't do that. It doesn't insist on its own way. We defer to others. And we do it for your glory and for the benefit of us as we, as we by your grace, build one another up into maturity in Christ. That's what I want to do. As we interact, even on a Sunday morning, we're either given life or we're taking it. And it could be a smile, it could be a hello, how you doing, showing that we care about one another. And I pray that we would do that. And the same thing with this offering, that it would be for your glory, that it would help build us up as a, a body of believers here at Living Water. And that this offering would be used to, to advance the gospel so that more and more people would come into this great family that you've established as the children of God. Help us to behave rightly and not in an unloving manner, but in a loving one. We ask all this in Jesus' good name.